Well, please, congregation, turn your Bibles this morning to Psalm 144, page 721. In the Pew Bible, 721, Psalm 144, as we look to a new year, I'd like for us to consider this psalm together, that we might give our attention to how God's Word encourages us in the battle against sin and Satan and all our spiritual enemies. You may notice how various phrases from this psalm are echoes from other psalms, at least four other psalms. But King David is here bringing those notes together from those other psalms into one song as a prayer, not only for the king, but also for God's people. Psalm 144, this is God's holy word, a psalm of David. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters. From the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. The one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David his servant from the deadly sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. That our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth. That our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style. That our barns may be full, supplying all kinds of produce. That our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields that our oxen may be well laden, that there be no breaking in or going out, that there be no outcry in our streets. Happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Indeed, congregation, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, dear congregation, of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we consider Psalm 144 together this morning, we're reminded that we as believers find ourselves living in this time between the times. We know, for example, that the great war against sin and Satan and death has already been won. The, the great king of whom this psalm ultimately speaks has already come. God has, has given him victory over all his enemies, and God has crowned him with glory and honor, and, and God has given him that name that is above every other name. The victory has been won. And yet the battle still rages on. Those, those former things, Revelation 21, have not yet passed away. There is still so much pain and persecution in our world. The church of Christ is still despised and and rejected by the world. And so we find ourselves in this time between the times, this time between the initial inauguration of Christ's kingdom and the final consummation of Christ's kingdom. 
And so although we now find ourselves living in the realm of spiritual blessings, we have been brought into the kingdom of of God's own Son. This realm of of spiritual blessings, we learn in the Bible, is also a realm of of spiritual battle. For while Christ, says Sinclair Ferguson, has indeed delivered the death blow to the powers of darkness, they are not yet fully destroyed. And to be raised from spiritual death into spiritual life by Christ the King means that we are no longer the followers of the prince of the power of the air, but rather we've become the opposition. And this is why we are urged by the apostles, like the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5, to be sober, to be vigilant, to to recognize that, that our chief adversary, the devil, prowls about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It's for this reason that the apostle Paul likewise urges us in Ephesians chapter 6, saying, be strong in the Lord and and the strength of His might. Put on the the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For in this time, between the times, says Paul, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against cosmic forces of darkness in heavenly places. The apostles write this way. They write urgently in this manner because they understood that although the war had indeed already been won, the battle still rages on. And this is the reality that's likewise reflected here in Psalm 144. Because here in Psalm 144, King David has once again found himself surrounded by spiritual enemies. He needs to be rescued from the hand of foreigners, from those whose mouths speak only lies and whose right hand is a right hand of of falsehood. He likens his experience in verse 7 to feeling as though he is drowning. And so he, he cries out to the Lord saying, stretch out your hand from on high and, and rescue me, deliver me. And yet he also knows that the victory is his. He knows that the victory is sure. And that's why he can say in verses 9 and 10, I will sing a new song to you, O God. And upon a ten-stringed harp, I will, I will play to you who gives salvation or, or victory to kings who delivers David, his servant, from the deadly sword. And this congregation we all recognize is our present reality too. The war has been won, the victory is sure. But the battle still rages on, the battle against sin and Satan, the battle against our spiritual enemies and all the the false ideologies of the world that that attack us every day. We recognize this as as we move into a new year. But the battle still rages on. And sometimes we begin to feel, as David began to feel, like we're drowning. There are times when the battle seems too fierce for us to go on any longer. There are times when our hands grow weary and when our knees grow weak from the battle. But this psalm has been given to us to remind us again that those who hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. As the prophet Isaiah has said in Isaiah chapter 40. And this seems to be what David is reminding himself of here in Psalm 144. Because as David finds himself here in the heat of battle, what does he do? David places his trust, he places his hope in the Lord. He recounts who the Lord has been for him. He recounts all that the Lord has done for him. And he cries out to the Lord knowing full well that God will surely give to him and to his people the protection 
and the peace that they long for. And so David blesses the Lord his rock. He blesses the Lord his rock who preserves his people. He blesses the Lord his rock who, who hears the prayers of his people. He blesses the Lord his rock who brings about everlasting peace and prosperity for his people. And these are the three things I'd like for us to consider together this morning. Just in the first place, God's people preserved. In the first four verses of this psalm, we discover that in the midst of this battle, God does not leave his people to fend for themselves. God does not leave us to our own devices. He doesn't summon us to, to fight this battle in our own strength as though we can do it all on our own. For God knows that as we confess in the Lord's day, 52 of the catechism, that we are weak. We are so weak, in fact, that we cannot stand on our own even for a moment. God knows that our hands grow weary. He, he knows that our knees grow weak. He knows that our love often grows cold and our spirits grow faint. And although we deserve it not, He has regard for us anyways. God is mindful of our human frailty. As David says elsewhere in Psalm 103, the Lord knows our frame. He, he remembers that, that we are simply dust. And that's what David humbly confesses here in verses 3 and 4. He knows that, that man is but a breath or a vapor. He knows that, that man's days are like a, a passing shadow. And yet in God's astounding grace and mercy, God has regard for man. God takes knowledge of man. John Calvin comments on verses 3 and 4, saying that having declared how singularly he had been dealt with in verses 1 and 2, David now turns his eyes inward and asks the question, who am I? Who am I that God should show such gracious condescension to me? For the riches of divine goodness, writes Calvin, are extended to objects altogether unworthy in themselves. For what is there that is so stable about us, asks Calvin. And the answer, of course, we know is nothing. We are utterly unstable. We are too weak to stand on our own. Even for a moment, there is no stability in us. And so you can hear the sense of awe and wonder in David's voice when, when he says, what he says in verses 3 and 4, O oh Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, that you regard him? And, and who is the son of man that you should think of him or be mindful of him? Man is like a breath, his days like a passing shadow. David, you see, recognizes that when measured against the eternal, self-sufficient maker of heaven and earth, we are indeed a breath that comes and goes in an instant. We're not worthy of God's fatherly care. We're not worthy of His watchful eye. For who are we, finite creatures, mere sinners, that God should think of us at all? But the point of these first four verses is that He does. God thinks of us. He thinks of us. We don't always believe that, do we? We sometimes wonder. We sometimes lay our heads to rest at night and we wonder, is anyone thinking about me? Is anyone concerned with, with little old me? 
Does anyone have regard for me at all? But David assures us saying, God does. God is thinking of you. God is, is mindful of you. He, he has regard for you. He's thinking of you this morning. And this reality drives David to humility. At the peak of his power as king, David can still hardly believe that the God of the heavens would have regard for him and think of him. But he does. And so what David is, is teaching us here is that we can only begin to understand something of the, the magnitude of God's mercy, and we understand something of the magnitude of our misery. We can only understand something of how strong and how mighty our God is. We recognize how weak and how puny we are. We can only give to God the, the honor and glory that is due Him when we recognize that we are weak and undeserving. For although we are nothing, although we deserve nothing, God has given us everything. And that's what David is assuring us of here. It's not as though God doesn't have a care in the world about you. It's not as though God isn't, isn't concerned about you or about your future. But He thinks of you. He has regard for you. He does not leave you to, to fight the spiritual fight on your own. This is the believer's confession. And this is why David says what he says in verses 1 and 2, Blessed, blessed be the Lord my rock. Why? Because he trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Because he himself is my loving kindness, he is my steadfast love and my high tower, my, my stronghold and my deliverer. He is my shield in whom I take refuge. He subdues peoples under me. God preserves his people. As Lord Z52 goes on to say, yes, we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own even for a moment, yet God upholds us. And God makes us strong by his spirit so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our spiritual enemies until we win the complete victory. There is not a doubt in David's mind. And there ought not to be a doubt in our minds either. God will uphold us and make us strong until, until all our enemies are placed under our feet. For although we are so weak and wobbly, although we are entirely unstable in ourselves, we have our stability in Him. He is our rock, says David. He is that rock upon whom we can build the entirety of our lives. He is that rock upon whom we can always rely. No matter how great or how big or how strong our enemies may appear to be. And wasn't this reality the very thing that emboldened the young David in 1 Samuel 17? There in 1 Samuel 17, the, the armies of Israel were trembling in fear, not one of them being so daring as, as to approach mighty Goliath. He was, of course, a, a picture of the greater enemy, Satan himself. Day after day for 40 days, great Goliath took his stand, standing in open defiance against the armies of Israel. And when they saw him, the Spirit tells us, all the men of Israel fled from him, and they were much afraid. But when David 
heard Goliath ridiculing them in that way, what did David say? David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then when King Saul sought to dissuade him from going out against Goliath, how did David respond to that? He said, your servant has struck down lions and bears, and this Philistine will be just like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. For the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will also deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so David went out against Goliath, not wearing the the armor of King Saul, but being clothed in the confidence of the Lord, who, who was his rock. When Goliath saw him, he ridiculed him, saying, Am I a dog, that you should come to me with sticks? Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. But David didn't budge an inch, did he? But David, trusting in the Lord, his rock spoke boldly to that Philistine, saying, You come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And this day he will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and so that all the assembly might know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into our hands. And so the Lord did. David prevailed over the great giant Goliath, and the armies of Israel pursued the Philistines and, and plundered their camp. You see, congregation, we have the Lord as our rock. Our enemies are not half as big as we think they are. God cuts them down to size. Who was, who was Goliath to stand against the armies of the living God? He was nothing. He was puny. I couldn't help but wonder if David perhaps was recalling all those things to mind when, when he said in, in Psalm 144, ours is the God who trains our hands for war and our fingers for battle. Although the battle does at times seem fierce and the warfare long, we know that the battle is not our own. The battle is, in fact, the Lord's, and he will give the victory into our hands. This needs to be our confidence, congregation, we move into the next year. This needs to be our confidence as we fight against sin and temptation in this life. This needs to be your confidence even after you have given in to sin, when you feel as though all has been lost, the battle is the Lord's, even then and there when you are at your absolute weakest. And you've shown yourself, I am, you are weak, you can't stand on your own. Even then, God has not forgotten you, but even then, He yet thinks of you. He takes knowledge of you, and He is mindful of you. The good news of this psalm, you see, is that in the Lord Jesus Christ, sinners like us can say what David has said, the Lord is my steadfast love and fortress. He is my high tower and my deliverer. He is my shield, and whom I take refuge. He subdues peoples under me. As the Lord strengthens his soldiers and equips them for battle, as he trains our hands for war and our fingers for battle, he does so with the added assurance that he himself is our loving kindness. He is our steadfast love. 
When our love grows cold, his love does not. When I am weak, he remains strong. He trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He preserves me. He preserves me. This is the believer's confession. God preserves me. This that we confess all throughout the, the fifth head of the canons of Dort. God preserves his people. Through thick and thin, he does not let us go or, or abandon us to our own strength, but he preserves us. This is the believer's great comfort and assurance. God's love for his people is a love that has neither beginning nor end. Jeremiah would say that, that God has loved us with an everlasting love. And Gerhardus Voss would say that's the best proof there is that God will never stop loving you. The best proof that God will never stop loving you is that God never began loving you. He, he simply always loved you. And he himself is your steadfast love. He himself is your loving kindness, your covenant love. God's love is a love that ensures that he will do all that he has said he will do. Indeed, it's a love that, that cannot be thwarted, not by your own sin or by Satan or by anybody else. Isn't that what Paul says? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, says the believer, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. God's love is David's refuge. His love is David's safety and security. His steadfast love is the source of David's faith and hope. God's love is simultaneously the, the fortress, the, the high tower that David can take refuge in, as well as the shield he can take with him into battle. God himself has become David's steadfast love. His steadfast love is that which enables us and empowers us to fight the fight of faith and, and to contend for that faith which was once for all delivered to the saints as Jude summons us to do. For in his loving kindness, in his love, God looks down from heaven and he has regard for his people. As Isaiah 57 says, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, says God, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And so on the heels of his humble confession in verses 3 and 4, David makes his request known to God. He, he prays to God. For David, writes one pastor, needs the one who is high and lofty to reshape his reality. And this is something that David recognizes only the Lord himself can do. Try as we might, none of us have the power or the ability to, to reshape our realities. what we are unable to do, God is able to do. As our all-powerful King, He is able and willing to give us all that is good, we confess. 
As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 20, God is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think or imagine. God is able to reshape our reality. And so in the heat of the battle, David doesn't simply look around at his enemies. He doesn't look around and become overwhelmed by his enemies, but David looks up to the God who hears. And he cries out for rescue. He cries out for deliverance. David recognizes, but we must recognize, he recognizes that, that he'd be a fool if he tried to, to face this battle without asking for the Lord's help daily and urgently. David, you see, leaves no room whatsoever for self-reliance, does he? But remembering how small he is in comparison to how great his God is, he calls upon God in prayer. He calls upon the God who hears. He recognizes that he can't do it on his own. How often don't we live as though we can do it on our own and we forget to pray? David cries out for rescue. He looks to the God who alone can help, who is his strength. God to do great things, doesn't he? In verse 5, he, he calls upon the Lord to, to bend the heavens and come down. Imagery that, that depicts God taking hold of the horizon and, and pushing it out of the way to come down and to intervene for his people. He prays to the God who is powerful and able to send forth lightning to scatter his enemies, who, who causes the mountains to smoke with a, a touch of his finger. He prays, stretch out your hand from on high, rescue and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. And then in the confidence that God will surely hear his prayer and grant that deliverance, what does David say? In verses 9 and 10, I will sing a new song. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon the ten-stringed harp I will play to you who gives victory to kings, who delivers David a servant from the deadly sword. There is not a doubt in David's mind. David knows who his God is. He knows who our God is. He knows that this God who trains our hands for war, this God who, who trains our fingers for battle, he knows that this God is not a God of defeat. He's not like, you know, Baal with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel who just gets defeated. He's a God of victory. He gives victory. He gives salvation to kings, and he rescues his servant David from the deadly sword. For God says one writer wins praise for himself by his might against the enemies of his people. God wins praise for himself by his might against the enemies of his people. Isn't this precisely what God did at the cross of Christ? He won praise for himself by crushing the enemy of his people. It was there at the cross that God rescued us from all the lies and falsehoods of the world, all the pain of the curse of death. It was there at the cross of Christ and his subsequent resurrection and ascension that, that the victory was assured once and for all. And so much so that, that in Christ, God says to us that a day is coming when this 
God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet, as Paul says in Romans 16, verse 20. For as Lord's Day 52 reminds us again, it is more certain that God hears our prayers than we feel in our hearts that we desire such things from Him. What that means is that even in the weakness of our own personal prayer lives, our prayers are made strong in the Lord Jesus Christ who always lives to make intercession for us. It is much more certain that God hears our prayers than we feel in our hearts that we desire the things we pray for. When we pray to God, it's not as though our, our prayers go so high as the ceiling to bounce right back down to the ground. We're not speaking into dead air. But He is the God who hears. He is the God who is indeed able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think or imagine. This is the marvel of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, that this God who is so great exalted is willing to come down. He's willing to come down to the aid of his people and to give them peace. And that's what we find in verses 12 and following. This is precisely what God does. He comes down and he gives his people peace. David is sure that victory is, is not a matter that's still up in the air, but our victory in this spiritual warfare is certain. A day is coming, says one pastor, when our commander, Jesus Christ, will call us away from the battlefield. And he will give us the victor's crown. And then we will share in his absolute eternal conquest of the evil one. He will put Satan under our feet. And is with a view towards this certain future, looking forward to a time when, when the battle will be over, that David writes what he writes in verses 12 and following. And so he said the language of, of terror against his enemies in verses 5 to 8 now transitions to language of tranquility for God's people. May our sons and their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut in the structure of a palace. May our barns be full, supplying all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. In these three David is, is painting a, a wide-ranging picture of, of peace and prosperity, healthy children, barns that are full, healthy flocks, peace in the streets. And this is what God is sure to give his people. And yet when we study the Old Testament, we know how rarely was this kind of peace and prosperity actually experienced. Not because God's goodness was failing, but because wicked king after the next would reject all those promised blessings. And so we know that God's people often suffered the consequences of famine and plague and exile, didn't they? They didn't always experience this happiness described at the end of Psalm 144. We also know that in the fullness of time there came a greater king in Christ who came to rule in perfect truth and justice to make a way for true and, and lasting peace and prosperity. For God's goodness, writes James Hamilton, goes further back than man's sin, and his goodness will always prevail in the end. 
He shall cause His covenant children to flourish and thrive in His presence. If not fully in this life, then certainly in the life to come. And isn't this what the Apostle Peter was also getting at in chapter 5? That, that after he, he warned us, he urges us to, to be soberly vigilant, to recognize that, that we find ourselves in the midst of a battle where the lion is prowling after us. What does Peter say? And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to eternal glory in Christ Jesus will himself confirm, establish, and strengthen you. And so David concludes the psalm by saying, happy, happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. No one in all the world, congregation, is as richly blessed as we are. No one in all the world is as happy as we are or as satisfied or as fulfilled. There is no happiness apart from the Lord Yahweh, this covenant God who preserves, who hears prayers, who brings about peace. Only the Lord can offer that which truly satisfies, namely, himself. That's what Isaiah was getting at. Isaiah, at the start of Isaiah 55, come to the waters. Come and, and satisfy yourselves with, with rich food, the, the food of the gospel that, that tells us about Jesus Christ. Nothing satisfies us as much as God himself satisfies us. Happy are the people who are in such a state, the state of knowing that Christ is, is king, that God hears and preserves, and happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, indeed, we are the blessed ones. We are the happy ones. We who know that you alone are our God, Father, we thank you that you have preserved us from age to age the same. You have been our God, and you have preserved us in this fight for our lives, this spiritual battle against Satan and all his hosts. We thank you, Lord, for the confidence that we have then as we live out the rest of our lives knowing that we need not look to ourselves or to our own devices. That when we look around, we need not be overwhelmed, but we need only to look up the God who hears, the God of heaven, who comes down to the aid of his people. And Father, we thank you for the promise of peace, that same promise that Jesus gave his disciples before his earthly departure. Peace, I leave with you my peace, I give you, he said. May we live in light of that promise, Lord, in light of the confidence of his second coming. We just celebrate, Lord, his first coming. In that confidence, we can be sure that he will come again that all his enemies and ours he will cast down to everlasting punishment, but all his chosen ones he will take with him into the joy and glory of heaven. And Father, we pray that he would come soon. We pray for this lasting peace and prosperity that will fade not away. We pray that 2023 would be the last year before Christ comes again. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.